Please pronounce your name correctly for me. It's Axel Wieder. It's German last name, first name, something Nordic, which was the choice of my parents, a kind of fashionable direction at the time of my birth. Now I'm working. So it's a Nordic short name. Now I'm working actually since a while in Scandinavia. So it's kind of fitting. Right. So, okay. Speaking of childhood and parents, I'm always interested. So you're the director of a museum or a Kunsthalle to be specific and a curator and a writer and all this. So how did you even get created? So were your parents creative? Like how did you even come into this sort of the arts industry? Not through my parents, I think. My mother was very interested in culture, but more into antiques. We did travels to Italy, to France to see remnants of Roman culture. So it was maybe an openness to culture and an interest in history, but I was kind of like very early on drawn to like classic avant-garde, modernist avant-garde, like Dada and writing that came from, I guess, like early 20th century radical questioning of how writing functions, how sense is produced within texts. So that was like in my teenage years, maybe a kind of like teenage interest also in making sense of the world and how all this kind of nonsense might also make sense. There was this kind of early interest in avant-garde culture and I started going to museums and being drawn to kind of radical, I guess, thoughts and artistic work. But it didn't have so much to do with my parents, if I think of it. It was more a kind of like yeah, attraction to radical ideas that came from, I don't know, me and friends that enjoyed doing that together with me. So that was your rebellious phase, was to get into the avant-garde? Yeah, I guess that, <laughs> I guess that was it. Not so much bands, that too, but I guess it was connected to that, yeah. Yeah, like punk rock would be my thing, for sure, because I grew up in Washington, D.C., so the, the whole straight-edge movement and all those gangs, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess a similar time in phase in life. For the listeners who are worldwide, and I'm doing this because I'm an idiot and I was unaware of what a, a, a Kunsthal is truly. So like, give me a definition of what exactly a Kunsthal is, because it's different than a museum. It's different than a gallery. It's its own thing. It's initially a German term. Kunsthal is definition, something that connects to the German speaking context, mainly Germany. And speaking about 18th, 19th century, aristocracy still had strong hands on production and presentation and financing of culture. So it was basically, it was one of the institutions that were born out of aristocrats' displays of their collection. Strange enough, it has a very different meaning today. So the Kunsthal where I'm working now, Bergenkunsthal in Bergen, Norway, adopted this name from the German-speaking context, and they took it... This happened in 2002, when the institution I'm working for today, at that time called Bergens Kunstvereining, decided to change the working model and adopt also a new name. So they went for Kunsthal, Bergen Kunsthal, with the aim of like connecting to a kind of more internationally renowned or kind of people know what it means. But it's historically a bit imprecise. So nowadays it means an institution, mid-size, similar size to a museum, to a small museum, but not having a collection. That's the main difference. Like, we don't have a collection. Many Kunsthals don't have a collection. They show temporary exhibitions, often newly produced works by artists, non-commercial, 
Usually it's funded by some kind of public money, often by a city. We are, in fact, mainly supported by the state, by the cultural ministry. So, but if, if you want to have a precise answer about the term Kunsthalle, it's difficult and full of misunderstandings. No, I think you did a pretty good job because there, there, you know, there is, of course, there's always the difference between its origin versus its contemporary use. But the, the big thing that I found out that I had no idea about coming from America where we don't have them was that it's more or less a museum without a collection, which I found very interesting. I, I was unaware of that slight little differentiation. That's true. And. I have to say, though, that there's even like a, to make it more, even more kind of complicated in terms of definitions, we do actually, we in Bergen, in the Kunsthal, we have a very busy events program. We have a very busy learning program that we run with schools, with other parts, like also grown-ups who want to learn something. And that's typically also like not something that Kunsthals are doing. So in a way, we're more also a kind of center for contemporary art, a very open public institutions that embraces all kinds of engagement with contemporary art. Okay, so one thing I'm fascinated about is the funding models that exist in Norway and other Scandinavians, but of course you're in Norway, so we'll stick with that. They have an amazing funding structure for arts and culture. I mean, coming from America, I am incredibly envious of the way it seems to run up there. So what? So it's your Kunsthal is funded by city government, so on, and you don't. So there's no need to find sponsorships or or support or anything like that because there there is a strong infrastructure. Am I right or am I wrong? Yeah, it, it, the tenancy is right. There is a strong funding and support system. There is a kind of strong culture is really part of public policies. So there is support, and it's understood as a kind of it's an important thing that the public pays for, and people pay for it by their taxes. That said, still uh, some gaps. I mean, we do a lot of fundraising work ourselves as well, often towards public funders, towards foundations. We work with kind of often, we show a lot of international artists, so there's often possibilities to raise money from working context of these artists, be public sources or be private money. And of course, we also work with sponsors here in the city, in the region. It is also part of our income. But I mean, you're right in tendency that just to say that it's a kind of, it's a, it's a wonderful situation. I mean, it's important to see that this is connected with the kind of remnants of the welfare state that still exists in, in Norway. Politics have also changed. Also, the kind of public sector has changed, but there is still belief in public sphere, in public administration, and in functions that are supported by these agencies, by the tax money. I love it. I wish I was born into it. Because from what I understand, more or less, you either have to be a citizen of that region or have a full-time job or own property in that region in order to get any of those financial benefits, right? It's relatively open. It's, I mean, of course, again, like this in order to get, uh, I mean, you can visit everything. You can come as a tourist. You can see all the museums. You can, I mean, under normal circumstances, once the corona situation will have improved a bit and traveling is possible again. Yeah, no, that's possible, of course. And I think also there is a relatively, like compared with other countries, it's a relatively open funding system also. Artists that we work with can apply for projects, even though they're not Norwegian, and it's just a project that happens in Norway. That's also possible. 
Oh, that's magnificent. Okay. I didn't know that. So what's the mission of Bergen? Is, am I pronouncing that correctly? Bergen? Kunstall? <laughs> yeah, it's good. Close. Perfect. No, no, it's, it's not great. perfect. No, it's, good. no, it's not <laughs> perfect. I know that. But, but it's more of a Bergen than a Bergen, right? Yeah, or a Bergen, yeah. Bergen? Yeah, let, <laughs> I, I'm not Norwegian myself. I'm actually, I'm German. Okay. I'm a foreigner as well, and it's my fourth language. Wow, you all are so much better at languages than we are in America. Like, I barely speak English, for, for God's sakes. So, anyways, the mission of the, of the Kunstall, because <laughs> I can say that word correctly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so, like, what is the mission? Is it intended to be supportive of its uh, local community? Is it intended to be international and bring things in from outside in order to sort of enhance the local art scene? Like, what's the, the purpose? And the purpose is to show contemporary art with the international perspective in Bergen. That's the kind of purpose. It's to make contemporary art, ideas, discussions in all its kind of like wideness, breadth available or to show it to people living and working here. Bergen is a small city, relatively small, 280,000 inhabitants. It's the second largest city in Norway, though. It's after Oslo, it's the second city. And it used to be at some point the capital. That's a long time ago. But it's still kind of a sore feeling about that. You know, it's in many countries, we have this kind of rivalry between the largest city and the coolest city. And Bergen is, in a way, clearly this coolest city in the country that sees itself as, or that we all see as cultural capital in, in Norway. But still, like in absolute terms, comparing it to other cultural capitals in Europe, it's a small city. But it has a very active and busy cultural scene. There's an art academy that's now part of the university, but started as its own institution. There's an architecture school, also one of the only three architecture schools in Norway. There's a music academy. There's a big musical tradition. Edvard Grieg was born or worked in Bergen and lived here, died here, and installed a big music festival. So there's, there's a kind of this cultural tradition and really a contemporary, very busy scene. So the Kunsthalle is clearly part of that in terms of being a presentation platform, showing things that are happening in the city and bringing also artists from abroad or other parts in the country to kind of feed in to give a kind of new impulses here. But we are, again, like it's a public institution, so we have a much wider audience than that as well. Like people who are interested in arts and culture. And maybe like for the kind of, in, I mentioned this shift in 2002 when the Kunsthalle changed its name and its operational model. That was to embrace the kind of internationalization and professionalization of the arts field in Norway as a whole. And the mandate for the Kunsthalle was to basically, it was the most international place in the country and bringing the most interesting, most well-known artists to the country and producing the most outstanding and professionally made exhibitions. You know, there's two types of making exhibitions. One is like bringing artworks from somewhere and showing them. And then there's this kind of more production-focused approach, meaning inviting an artist to react to the situation, to react to the spaces, to also do research and understand what might be really fitting for a location. And that was very much embraced by the Kunsthalle at that point to really enable artists to make new work, to make new exhibitions and to facilitate them doing that. And that requires expertise, long-term planning, also resources. And that was kind of 
what the Kunsthalle got as a kind of major quality. So when you're planning your program for the future, how do you sit down and like literally you could do an exhibition about any topic in the world, but somehow you've refined it down to a certain set of topics. How do you even choose which topics to sort of address or cover? It's a one of the crucial questions and a really complicated question. And it has to do with experience and I guess also sometimes gut feelings, which is maybe important to realize that a lot is kind of like internalized experience. But of course, there's some kind of like external aspects. And then there's kind of strategic questions, especially for a place like Bergen. I thought it was, it's very important that the program actually makes sense in the location where we are. It shouldn't be a program that's kind of could happen in exactly the same way as in, I don't know, other cities or the main cultural kind of hubs in the world. It should be something that actually makes sense here in this context, in this kind of specific situation with, I don't know, a certain history and also things happening here at that moment. So there should be some kind of context specificity or kind of reaction to what's happening here and what's kind of important and discussed here. And then, I mean, it's a lot has to do with research, very frank. I look at a lot of art and I look at art together with my colleagues and we discuss it. And I talk to people, maybe that's, yeah, I guess that's what's called network then. Of course, I listen to people who have interesting suggestions. That comes together with a kind of quite clear ambition for the institution I'm working for. I mean, I want to make a program as interesting and great and forward thinking as possible. I have an ambition that the program is also politically relevant, that it does something to the site, to the discussion. There should be some kind of awareness about things that go on in the world and urgent things that art can respond to. There's a kind of art cannot do, art can't solve problems in the world, but there is a role for art in feeding in or having a voice in these discussions and to figure that out and to find artists who actually manage to do that work with us is important. Okay, I want to get really pedantic with you, like super specific on that. I'm not a fan, like, so this is totally my personal opinion and I'm projecting this onto this. I'm not a fan of like what I call political art. And, and I know that there's, the, but there's a subtle difference between like political art and art that is politically motivated or politically based. So like, what's to you, like, what's the difference between what I would, like to me, political art is like, when I think of that, I think of like Russian propaganda or something like that. That's political, that's art designed for political purposes versus art that discusses political issues, but it's not necessarily the primary part of it. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. And like, I mean, I lived for many years in Berlin. And as I mentioned, I'm initially, my background is being raised in Germany. And of course, I mean, this kind of question of like the freedom of the West versus ideology of the East is kind of like ingrained in everybody who grew up in Germany in the 90s. I can see that and I, I would completely agree with you that art gets maybe boring if it becomes just a deliverer of message, if it becomes more a kind of design. But I must say, maybe that has changed over the past couple of years a bit. I do find it interesting to rediscover a kind of more harshly ideologically framed attempt to articulate something within the arts. 
The world at the moment is ideologically already so divided. It's, I mean, wherever you go on every question, there is this kind of like people know already so much and they really know and they don't want to know other things. I mean, even if now with Corona, every country has its kind of section of <laughs> Corona negators or critics of vaccination programs, etc. And there's a lot of knowledge and there's counter knowledge and people know what they want to know. Sometimes I wonder if it's also in the arts good to be more clear about standpoints than trying to assume this position of the kind of neutral or quasi-objective discursive observer or so. I mean, there's often this kind of, I, I would also completely subscribe to an idea of art that's very reflected in thinking through its means of representation. It was always like, if you look back into art history, the most interesting points in art history are not necessarily about which king is depicted, but the way they're depicted, how an artist takes these means and slightly shifts the kind of modes of representation for a king and thereby criticizing or commenting or kind of slightly subverting the normative frameworks of representation. And that's really interesting for me. Yeah. Now that idea of addressing a political thing in some sort of subtle way like this, I feel like is somehow more, it's both a little bit more provocative, but it's also a little bit more impactful. Like I would react more to something sort of subtly integrated than if somebody hits me over the head with it. Exactly. And I can see that, but I do think maybe I'm at the moment really interested in, in kind of functions for art institutions. That's no more speaking about the institutional perspective. I'm interested in art institutions that understand themselves as agencies for progress or for ambitious and liberating and advanced kind of political discussion. And that means somewhat yeah, political leaning. At the moment, I think this is really necessary. There's too much happening in other parts of society that need some kind of countering of that. I'm all for political discussion and political discourse. I think that's all fabulous. I'm not questioning that, but it's like political art, like art with the intention of, of propaganda, I guess, is really the thing I'm coming back to in my mind. I keep thinking of propaganda art every time I think of political art. But you have to understand, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so like I'm so tired of politics, period. Um, and my father's a minister, so I also don't talk about religion very much either. So, yeah, just it's not my thing. But but like, there's a great role of a place like a consult to to at least engage in the discussions about political concerns. That seems right. I'm I'm all for that. I, as I said, I'm being super pedantic on this, <laughs> and I apologize. No, it's an important discussion also, like what kind of like political role an art, art institutions have, an art institution have. You know, there's often like, if you look at ways that institutions describe what they do for, in terms of diversity, for example, there's often this kind of description of like an institution should reflect the diversity of society today. And that's completely true. There should be a kind of connection to reality. But I do think I would even go a step further, actually, that institutions also should struggle or fight for more diversity. It shouldn't just reflect. I think there should be this moment of being an active agent, of pushing development even further to kind of recognize 
the diversity within society and to understand it as a kind of important quality. What, have you run into a point where you've like maybe gone over a line, like pushed a little too hard? Because, I mean, there's that fine line in most institutions. So like not necessarily your Kunstall, but, you know, uh, public institutions that are seeking other funding other than government kind of stuff. Like there's only so far you can go where you might offend uh, a potential sponsor or a potential client or whatever kind of thing. Like, so like, have you run into any sort of pushback from maybe crossing a line? No, I don't think so. I don't think actively it's yet. No, no, I don't think that's a danger. It's more like the type of institution there is very collectible art. That's maybe not necessarily fitting in our vision or our, the direction that we're working with. Hence, we maybe don't have some of the connections to kind of important collectors who are also then possible sponsors. That's maybe something that's not just not establishing because that's not so much place within our work at the moment. Okay, that whole thing right there, that's fascinating to me. The whole like making art that's not collectible. I was raised and taught on the idea of like art is something that should be able to be appreciated in any situation. So you should, could have it in your home. You could have it at your office. You could have it at, at, a, at a museum or institution, you know, sort of objects that be, can be collected by people basically. But there's this huge um, movement, advancement of sort of experiential, uh, you know, time-based, location-based artwork that like basically when it's done, the only thing left of it is the documentation of it. So that sounds like something that you're more um, interested in at this point, yes? No, I mean, I wouldn't say that, sorry. <laughs> that sounded a bit too... <laughs> too pompous? Yeah, okay, I went too far. No, no, no. No, there's certainly, no, what, what I mean is like with, there are artists that are kind of like, that are loved by, by collectors and that are bought a lot by collectors. And I don't know, that artists that are connected to some, to major commercial galleries. And then there's a lot of other stuff that happens around that. And I do agree there are works that are harder to collect, but I do think that all artworks are in some way collectible. I mean, of course, a video installation, a video can be collected. There are specialized collectors who buy that type of work. There's actually even famous and international and somehow quite glizzy collectors who collect this type of work. There's Julia Stoschek in Düsseldorf and now Berlin who has a major collection on time-based, mainly video art. So it's possible. And there's also very critical work that is collected. It's a question if it's, what does that do to the work? But there, there is a market for this type of work as well. <laughs> Sorry, what was the question? What was the starting point? No, no, it's okay. Like I, I take, I, I don't mean it as some sort of differentiation. I just mean it as like there's some sort of a shift, you know, like when I was young and in school 20 years ago, 25 years ago, we were very focused on sort of the object-based production. So like you, you create an object that you can then take to a gallery to then the, be able to be sold kind of thing. Whereas it seems like in the past 20, 25 years, it's, there's a progression to a bit more of a installation, experiential. Like it, I feel like it's becoming a bit more prevalent. I mean, I know it's always been there, but I feel like it's becoming more common and more prevalent than it had in the past yeah but then at the same time there's also still painting still drawing still sculpture and there's art fairs obviously art fairs are as big 
as they have never been before. So that's, maybe that's my counter argument. So I think there's both. And what is interesting though, and that is maybe like your experience, there is big exhibitions have become more important in the past 20, 30 years, like biennials, documenta, and those institutions or exhibition formats in which like not necessarily market relevant artistic productions has been shown a lot. So maybe that's the kind of what that maybe responds to your observation or where your observation comes from. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing which is kind of interesting and that is like, what does it do to the memory of these works? Are these works then, if they're really not collectible or difficult to collect, will these fall out of the kind of museum circuits? So hence, will they be not shown again in 10, 20, 30 years? Will they not survive? And again, like, I do think there is a market for some type of artistic production in this. There's also like Flick Collection, Hamburg Bahnhof, if you have been there or remember in Berlin, there was a kind of, it was also like a major private collector with difficult financial, like he had a, his family wealth was in parts produced during fascism in Germany. So this collection embraced kind of more difficult artworks for typical museum display. So that was there. I think the art market is also quite flexible. And of course, there's always the desire in the art market to collect the most relevant artistic production and the most cutting edge and the most forward thinking artistic production. That's maybe like for me, the kind of question of the art market. It's also very much like, is this something that actually still is relevant? Like, what do we do with this kind of ambivalent fact that if stuff gets bought by wealthy people, does that really mean it's getting more important? Is it getting more important because it actually ends up in museums through donations and these kind of shifts of uh, location through donations and so on? My theory would be that art's value would go, would increase by museum and institutional exhibitions and collections, which then constitutes more collectors buying it so therefore sort of it's sort of a a little bit of a cyclical event like a collector buys something because we know this all goes on a collector buys something and then the collector happens to be on the board of a museum so he encourages the museum to have an exhibition of the artist that he just bought he or she just bought and so then because of the museum exhibition the value of that work has just increased so therefore the they more people will then start collecting that person's work exactly <laughs> We're talking about cybernetics here. It's about a, it's a complex system. Horrible. Anyways, let's get off the art market. You're you're not really in the market kind of stuff. The one thing that I'm interested though that I'm I'm fascinated with, but like I love curators. I think curators are amazing. You are a curator, so I want to sort of int- ask you my general sort of curatorial questions. What constitutes an artist that somehow grabs your attention? So like there are millions of artists in the world these days. You're all connected through social media and the internet. How do you choose to engage with or appreciate one artist out of those millions? So usually it's a kind of long process. So I see artworks and sometimes I react quite spontaneously and I kind of like something grabs my attention. That's actually really hard to describe. Like, what is it? It just tickles or it touches on something I have at the moment a question for. Like it's basically an answer for something that I'm kind of like asking myself. 
But usually before really working with an artist, it takes a longer time. I Usually it's a kind of longer process of following an artist's work, seeing work, seeing it hopefully also in physical form at some point, talking, and then maybe at some point there's a collaboration of working together. So usually it's a quite long process, but it starts with this moment of like actually seeing something. Give me a timeline on that long process, because I know of one gallery that like they would... They would see an artist and they would like put a file in their folder and they would go back to it 10 years later before they would even think about representing them. Yeah, that's a very long time. But I mean, usually it's, I think, two years. It's maybe like a normal process between seeing something and, I don't know, considering, but usually it's longer. Also like this, of course, artists I have worked with repeatedly throughout my working life. This is like just artists that become close collaborators and then sometimes I show an artist in a group show and then 10 years later in a solo exhibition that also happens okay I want to I'm gonna get really personal with this like I'm really bad with that because what you just talked about was like basically it's it's not about making the connections or the quote-unquote like network but like you know making a, a relationship with a curator so let's say from an artist perspective but it's, it's about maintaining that relationship. And that's where I fall apart a lot. So like, what's the appropriate amount of maintaining of a relationship? Like, do you want me to send you emails every six months? Do you want some letters, some invites to exhibitions? Do we need to go for beer? Like, what, what's the, the level of sort of professionalism without getting annoying and being needy? Yeah, I mean, but it really has... <laughs> I guess everybody has some friends that <laughs> get in touch too often and other friends who get in touch not often enough. I guess it's pretty much the same. Yeah, I fall on the not enough line of that one, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a pity. Yeah, you should <laughs> do less podcasts and more phone calls. I haven't used a phone for a phone call in months. <laughs> like we use Zoom and everything else these days. Like, I don't, yeah. No, but it's really difficult though, because I find that like you follow, if you become friends, so, and this doesn't matter, curator, gallerist, museum person, whatever, like if an artist becomes friends, then it becomes like almost a conflict of interest to then have them in exhibitions if they're friends. But if, the, but if you can stay professional, like professional associates, whatever kind of word you want to put to it, then it's perfectly legitimate to sort of include their works into exhibitions. And that's a really hard line because you want to stay friendly enough that I'm that we're on your radar, but not too friendly that it looks like you're being sort of almost nepotistic and just putting your friends in exhibitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. And that shouldn't happen. Uh, but, you know, the term friend is also a bit like inflated sometimes. It's like people one works with and they become, yeah, I should say, like friendly, but I don't have a thousand friends, but I probably have a couple of hundred artists very friendly with that I am in touch with at least occasionally. And that I see usually like, I don't know, when traveling is possible, one meets once in a while somewhere and has a chat. I guess that's professional network. In the art world, we still call it friends. And I guess it creates this feeling of being on the same room or space and sharing some ideas or ideals. I don't think it has really something to do with nepotism. It's more like a kind of discussion. Yeah, it's important to keep that separate because it is like this kind of a shared discussion that's very much interest driven. 
It's about trying to do good work, to work on similar questions, to bring the art world and artworks forward and doing good stuff. All right. When, when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about like, you're a curator of an institution. Many, some, like in my mind, now keep in mind, I could be totally wrong on this. So please tell me if I'm totally wrong. In my mind, like curators sort of take a, a position of like, they choose to find the young new artists, the, the ones burgeoning on the scene as like their, that's their mission to sort of find new artists. Or they want to choose a mid-career artist, let's call them, and sort of maybe give them a new context or a fresh fresh perspective, some sort of newness to their, their career. Or they want to say like, okay, I'm going to bring in the Jeff Koons and the Damien Hurst and we're just going to have like a big blue chip thing. Like, I feel like there's sort of like three different tiers of curating. So like, is that, does that sound right? And if so, how do you fall into that? <laughs> I guess that's accurate, and I wouldn't have come to think about it so systematically. I'm have all you... <laughs> about systems. I want systems. I totally want to understand the whole art system. Yeah, interesting. You have talked to the... you have to... you seem to have talked to too many curators. <laughs> never, never. I love curators. They're so fascinating. Well, because. Each, but even if the, if I'm right about those three tiers, which I might be wrong, and maybe there's more tiers see, that I just don't even know the subtleties of them. But like as a broad stroke, if those three tiers exist, they all have their merit. I'm not saying any of them's bad. I mean, even the Jeff Koons, Damien Hurst, it has its merit, it has its place. But I'm just wondering, sort of like in your curatorial philosophy, sort of like how do you come about saying like, okay, I, do you say I want to have an exhibition and I want it to be a new fresh face or I, I want to have an exhibition and I want, and what it, the idea is based off of this. And there's this great artist that already works like this. And I think I could push them and, 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 you know, sort of enhance them in this way. Like what's your curatorial style? Maybe I want to answer quickly about the question you formulated before. There's a couple of things to say about that and don't get me wrong, but you know, there's kind of like systematic outside description of it. And I'm really sure that's how it looks and that's how it, uh, how it also works. But this is to me, there's a kind of maybe a slight sense of cynicism. Also, maybe a kind of a wish to understand things and to be able to play them or to make them work. And that maybe that's just like my own take. I actually, to me, like working in an institution, the kind of the institution comes really first. And that's like, I want to do something in that place. And I want to do something with the audiences we have and with maybe audiences that don't come yet. I want to do something within a scene on location, within a context. And then, of course, also with, I don't know, exciting artists I enjoy working with and I think work productively in that situation. So for me, that kind of like take on... A, also, curatorial choices is much more important. And then there's a, maybe a second thing, and that is more recent. Maybe I want to try to point to that also early on when we spoke about politics and so on. The last two years have been, they changed quite a lot within the way that we or the institutions within the art work. There was really kind of a major shift or a kind of political eruption or a social eruption. Like that 
first with Me Too and then specifically, more specifically with Black Lives Matter and everything that this caused in terms of rethinking how institutions work, how power dynamics in institutions work. I think changed a lot. And I do think that it really required every institution to rethink how they do their work and how they relate to the public, how they also internally organize to in order to meet interests or a kind of how they meet the public and how they kind of create a social space that relates somehow to society at large. And that means also like, I think priorities really changed and or at least the kind of questioning of previous priorities changed and i do think that this you know there is this kind of like the term curator and the professional field or the kind of the role of the curator is relatively new and it's just kind of like there is this there's an aspect to it that it's this somewhat overemphasized new professional role within the arts that came to prominence in the, I don't know, mid-90s or so. And uh, then it became this, by becoming to prominence and becoming kind of desirable for people, this question of like, ah, how do you want to do this job? And very much about thinking about the role and not about what it does, basically. And I would <laughs> reject that for me, just as a starting point, that it was never really my entry point into the profession. It was always much more about making projects, that's how it started, making projects. And then it became turned into a kind of more sincere interest in institutional structures and institutions as part of the social sphere in the city. Sorry, that was a very long answer. <laughs> and I don't want to sound as if I know the answer. It's really like I'm also still trying to figure things out. But it's just I think this is for me maybe a more important, that feels more true as my take on this as a profession. Oh yeah, don't get me wrong. My position, my my like categorical setup was a little bit cynical. Absolutely. <laughs> it was also very broad strokey. Like so it took away all subtlety and all nuance. It was just and it was also from artist perspective of looking at curators. That's not like world perspective looking at curators. So I totally understand how it came off as cynical. I apologize. <laughs> no worries. That's <laughs> it's okay. I mean, that's that's the nature of a conversation. Sometimes it goes smoothly, sometimes not. But okay. Going back to your Kunstall, your curatorial practices, how you do all of this. Um, do you get proposals or do you approach people? I, it's sort of as just a foundational thing. Both, I guess. I mean, I get proposals, but usually how successful projects start us approaching somebody. There are partnership proposals which actually do work. I mean, yeah, sure. If it's something interesting, that's great. But I have a huge amount of information of artists' work, all <laughs> very orderly stored on my hard drive. That's one thing. And then I have books. That's maybe even... That's not as orderly, but even more productive, maybe. This is like how I kind of follow artists' work. Of course, if somebody makes a proposal and it's interesting, this becomes part of my research. Okay, the reason why I'm coming to that is because I have this personal position, but I'm not going to share it with you because I don't want to come off as cynical and start the conversation that way. But artist statements. Uh, you, you have written books. You are a prolific writer as well as a curator and a director. So like when it comes to look, when you're looking at artists, how important are 
not just like statements, like broad statements about the, their artistic practice, but like things, the nuanced things of like titles. Basically, it's like the text that goes along with the works. How influential is that in your like decision on whether or not to work with somebody? You mean artist descriptions as this kind of like one page description of a practice? Sure. Any, any sort of, okay, here, I'll go ahead and just tell you my position. I'm not a big fan of them, but the reason why is because like artists are expected to be able to produce amazing visual art, whatever form that is. And then we're also somehow now in contemporary days obliged to also be able to write eloquently about our works. And I, I think that that's like asking a bit too much of us sometimes. Yeah, yeah. No, I see that. No, I was asking about, I mean, especially these these kind of formats of like making an artist statement that fits on a A4 paper. It's difficult. That doesn't really work with me. If you ask me personally, I do like to read about artist works if it's necessary. Like some artists, for some artworks, it's really necessary to have some information, but that doesn't need to be necessarily, I don't know, specifically well or theoretically founded or so it's really about information like if i see artwork there might be stuff that i need to know like where it's made and with what kind of material and how did it look how did it react to a kind of context or so and i might need to know that but i don't need to know too much about that doesn't need to be phrased in a too sophisticated way it's fine i mean these statements are often kind of like become its own cliche or so there's a danger in it certainly indeed yeah i mean I can't tell you how many, because I, I do portfolio reviews online also, and I am constantly reading like Latin phrases, f you know, Freudian quotes, like all kinds of pompous, arrogant bullshit that it's just like, come on, you're, you're trying to make it into something that it's not. And, I, I, you know, like I'm trying to figure out for myself, like, what's the sort of most effective way to create some text that accompanies some work that isn't doesn't make it less interesting but also doesn't come off as pompous and arrogant yeah i mean factual being being factual being informative be for me really a good way like this actually a sentence that i always found helpful even if it's a bit wisecracking but uh, it's not about the quality of the application it's about the quality of the project even if you write a kind of an application for funding, for example, it's sometimes like it's really about, of course, it's nice if it's well written and so on, but it shouldn't be about perfection of delivery. It's really about the project that should be good. That was just often I thought was important when being in juries myself and looking through stuff, just reminding oneself, it's not about the perfect layout of something. It's good if it looks nice and sober, but more about the thing that's kind of like described and depicted in. It's really hard though, because like, unfortunately we still use these vague words like good, quality. Like those are very nondescript words and they're very subjective words, you know, cause like what you would call good might not be what I would call good. What you would call quality, I might not call quality. So like that's those are really hard because i mean in most industries so like my wife does accounting like so like it's if she does a good job it's very obvious because the numbers added up correctly she's done a good job there if i've done a good job in the arts well you know you might love it but then the next curator might hate it so there's no consistency to that nature of like good and quality which in some ways i wish there was but in some ways i also appreciate that there's not 
Yeah. Do you think there is no... I mean, I, I do think there's kind of... The, the term quality is problematic because it's usually used as a kind of a shield to safeguard the decision. You say like, yeah, that was really of high quality. And then it means I don't want to talk further about why we made the decision. I mean, this is certainly this kind of tendency or you can see that as a motivation. But I do think there's, there is something that some artworks have a bigger drive or a bigger dynamic and they are more likely to actually trigger a discussion. And that's something that's, that is maybe a quality. And of course, maybe it doesn't need to qualify what type of quality we're talking about. It can't be just like quality per se, or if we kind of pretend there is a quality per se, we risk that it means, I don't know, quality in a way that is maybe too old fashioned, too connected to, I don't know, ideals of the past, like perfection of proportion or something, which is not maybe my definition of quality. But I mean, I have criteria that are important for me and that are kind of like, uh, that are, I would... Uh, <laughs> Please do tell. Now you want to know. It, it, it <laughs> that is kind of complicated. But of course, I do think artworks that make sense for me have the potential of triggering a discussion and making people think. I do think artworks that have, have a quality today, they still think about what art can do within all these broader discussions that we have. So there's a question of like reflection of representation, like it doesn't only make sense to, I don't know, hold a camera to something that's kind of depicted or described. There also needs to be thinking of why in that way and into which kind of like image tradition does this link in reflection of media that is used, an idea of maybe a specific role that art and artists can have within the broader political discussion. Yeah, I mean, these are really two of the main points. Well, I like your idea that basically art should start discussions because like, as you were saying that to me, I'm sitting here thinking like the last exhibition I went to and it, it was lovely. The, the technical quality was there, like it was, it was good, but it didn't, but I, I didn't need to talk about anything. It was just like lovely. And the conversation was done. And, and so I never really spoke about the work going like, oh my gosh, it was so good. It made me talk about this, think about this, look into this in a different way. It was just, it was just good, but it didn't spur anything, any conversation, any discussion. And so like, yeah, I, I do think there's something to that idea that like a, a good piece of art should encourage some conversation or else basically, or else nobody's going to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, nobody will talk about it and it doesn't do anything. I mean, for me, it's maybe in, <laughs> now we come really to the thing that's very hard to describe. I actually, I can feel if an artwork is doing something. If I go to an exhibition space and there's artwork that touches me or so, this space becomes a kind of space of activity. I can see that it moves something. And that's really kind of hard to describe, but it's a really a sensation. It's like if you go to a football stadium and there's a lot of people cheering and chanting and you have this kind of emotional grabs you if you want it or not. And that's a bit like that sensation. So it becomes this activity, like something that triggers thinking that becomes almost physical. 
Well, I mean, I'm just thinking through, like, it's like there are certain places and experiences that have like sort of triggering effects. Like if I walk into a cathedral or some really beautiful church with some great frescoes or something, there's something about that that will move me in some way. Though I'm not religious, it has something to do with nostalgia because my, my dad's a priest and all this stuff. But the, and then on the flip side of that, there's also like, you know, your own personal interests. Like, you know, if I walk into a nightclub or something like that, or a strip club, like there's something about that environment that sort of brings up emotions in you that a lot of times, you know, really great art can do the same thing, which that, but then sometimes the institutions is difficult because it, it avoids the experience because it just puts the object in the place like so the the idea of creating experiences in exhibitions is a, a something like additional senses smell sight sound touch all these kinds of things they they can enhance those sort of sense memories that make things more engaging and more appreciative yes I mean, it also has something to do with understanding. Like if something moves, it's like also this feeling of, I mean, you said going to church, but it's also kind of understanding a theoretical problem or even like understanding math, getting why something works. Like, ah, yeah, got it. That feeling is also there. And then, yeah, smell, even like experiences of like extremely dark, extremely bright spaces, etc. Something to do maybe with a kind of physicality of experience. And again, for me personally, super important still is like actually going to see exhibition spaces or like to see art in physical locations. How I notice that it's important is because I, that's kind of also how my memory works. If I go and see, if I remember like important exhibitions for me, I remember not just being in the space. I also remember getting there and I remember what I ate afterwards. And I remember maybe how I picked up a handout and how I made a note and put that in a folder and still I'm able to find it and find that note. So this has something to do also with, I don't know, emotions, but also this kind of organization of knowledge and memory within our own brains, like how we work, how we experience things. I often remember the sound of my walking through a space, like the echoes or the, you know, the, the feeling of the, the floor and, and then the, how the sound reverberates. So depending on what shoes I'm wearing, I make like louder sounds or softer sounds. And so the sounds uh, influence the, the, the engagement with the works for me. Yeah, I, I do audio stuff now. So like that kind of stuff really affects me. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. But it's like if anecdotal here, but I really like when usually when traveling, I go see a lot of exhibition spaces in a city, even like minor ones, like sometimes almost a bit ridiculous. My partner or accompanying friends getting a bit annoyed if I'm really kind of up for spending another hour to see a small space on the other side of the city. And everybody knows it's small. We've seen pictures. It's really tiny. But for me, it's important to get a sense of like where the space is. If it's a space that kind of interests me and that, yeah, it's kind of entering that physical infrastructure also of a certain kind of discussion or a scene. Like, I don't know, going to Brussels and I know there's this type of artists that run small space. Anyways, that's kind of important for me to then also experience actually physically. It has something to do with memory, but also with understanding infrastructure. 
Sure. I mean, I also love the the nature of sort of the the environment in which that place is located. Like I have this affinity for this particular nightclub that I went to, not because it was necessarily a great nightclub, but I loved the neighborhood it was in. So I loved the experience of even going to it because I liked walking down that street and, and seeing what's going on in that neighborhood. So it's, you know, having that entire context around the whole thing. Cause like, like I'm trying to think like not every artwork sort of represents itself well in every setting. So like certain works would, you know, like fit into certain neighbor galleries in certain neighborhoods. Like for instance, like some of my early works that I did when I was younger, like would look really stupid in a museum. (laughs) You know, like they just would look dumb because they just wouldn't fit the sterile white wall. They need sort of a more rough, like, you know, artist run co-op kind of pro place for it in a, in a little hip neighborhood kind of thing. Like the, there certain works sort of fit in certain contexts better. I'm not saying they can't, but they, they do better in certain places. And everything sort of leads up to that because like if you're going to a little small gallery on this outside of town, the the walk to get there or the drive to get there you're going to be in a certain mood you're going to be you know you're going to have taken that time and that energy and so like it's going to affect the experience of seeing or, or or you know participating in that that work of art so like everything everything affects everything yeah but it's also like yeah i, I think it also makes sense because all that is kind of part of artwork like an artwork usually happens within a certain context it's not just like objectively there it usually connects to its surroundings somehow people live somewhere they take inspiration from something it's important to experience that as well and actually fun or in- interesting it can be very fun it could also be horribly disappointing as well but you know <laughs> <laughs> got to take the good with the bad I enjoy a lot. Marvelous. All right. So finishing this up, uh, I've got two last questions I ask everybody. First one would be, could you give me the names of three contemporary artists that you're, let's call it, paying attention to? Or that you think we should pay attention to? Two artists we've worked with in the past. We've done shows, both Norwegian, and maybe it's interesting in international context to hear a bit about Norwegian artists. First, maybe the artist that we showed last year as our festival exhibition, which is a kind of, didn't spoke about that. It's a kind of highlight exhibition format we show at the Kunsthal every summer, presenting a Norwegian artist in connection to the International Festival for Music. It's a kind of like major national exhibition event. Anyways, last year we showed Joar Nango. He's based in Tromsø in northern Norway. His father is Sami, so he works within an indigenous tradition. He kind of works in a very interesting way between architecture and art, creating kind of multi-sensory environments. But also it's everything is super intellectual and really interesting, like in terms of how we build and think about our environment, like as in our built context. And then the second artist, Sandra Mujinga, as I said, also a Norwegian artist based in Oslo at the moment. She lived for many years in Berlin and she's nominated as one of the four finalists of the Preis der Nationalgalerie in Berlin, one of the most prestigious German art prizes or art prizes in Germany. 
We did a really amazing exhibition with her, which was about science fiction and visibility and invisibility. And she speaks about that with her background as a black woman working in Norway. So for her, this has also like a kind of very direct and personal experience of like being on the one hand, very visible, but also then often invisible. And then a third artist, maybe just because we're preparing an exhibition with her, Martine Sims. That's a show that we were supposed to open this January 2021. It had to be postponed to now November 2021. Martine Sims, she's from the US, based in Los Angeles, worked in Chicago for a long time. And her work is really into TV and uh, how different TV formats impact our reality. And she has done a series of works that propose a kind of fictional TV series called She Mad. And that show showing five large-scale video installations of this She Mad series. And that's interesting because even though Martine is American and we're showing it in Norway, there's so much American TV all around us. So our perception of reality and the way that reality is told is also now so much shaped by TV. So that's going to be very interesting to see. Marvelous. All right. And the last question I always ask is some sort of advice. So from your perspective, it could be for next generation of curators. It could be for artists, whatever you want. Try to be specific. Don't do things like keep working. Like, that's just <laughs> stupid. Like, specific, specific advice would be greatly appreciated. <laughs> A specific advice. I'm not sure if this is specific enough, but I do think actually being truly interested in what art can do and have some kind of sense of meaning. I know this is also very general, but not giving up on and really kind of uh, trusting that there is still a lot that can be done within art and it has not been explored and trying to push for that and not to strategize too much and not to think too much about how to make things work, but actually looking for the quality of the work and ambition and pushing within the work. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you for listening to the entire episode. We would appreciate if you would take a moment and give us a star rating, preferably a five star rating and or some comment in the comment section. These are things that help the algorithm that we all are ruled by figure out whether we're worthy of listening to, and it will help us in building a wider breadth and larger community around the podcast. So that would be greatly appreciated. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles, and the audio for this episode was edited by Jakub Czerny. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. <laughs>